Every time I see that and I'm about to preach, I feel like I'm supposed to like come out and be like, hey, everyone, like it's Monster Jam or something. So, hey, it's great to see you guys. Happy Mother's Day. I'm Tim. If you guys are just visiting, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the great honor of opening God's Word to walk through what Pastor Mike just read. I probably won't do the God voice like Mike did, but we'll see. Today we're going to continue our series through the book of Acts. The book of Acts, uh, this series is entitled The Actions of the Apostles by the Holy Spirit. It is written by a guy named Luke. He also wrote a book called Luke. Yes, Luke, I am your father. All right. I have thoroughly enjoyed this study through this letter as we've been going through it for the past many months. And when I think of the book of Acts, people tend to just kind of quote verses out of the book of Acts, not necessarily read the entire greater descriptive narrative. And that's what's been so great for me as we've been walking through this, which happened in the first century of Jerusalem and then throughout all of Asia Minor, Turkey, and places like that of present day. Today we're going to read about a situation that may not seem like a huge deal at first glance, but was the beginning of something absolutely fantastic for you and I in today's times. Last week, this week, and the next couple of weeks, we're going to go through a part of a passage that all kind of connect together, which they seem to create this narrative that Luke was trying to describe of the healing nature of God. And the fact that God the Holy Spirit had healed Aeneas from being bedridden and unable to walk for eight years. Luke writes that in all of that area where they found out about Aeneas, that all the people around had turned to the Lord through this miracle. And because, as Pastor Chris said last week, the miracles of God are to draw people to God. And then we see the second miraculous miracle in which God heals Tabitha of her deadness. And he brings her back to life through the Holy Spirit, through Peter, who was this Tabitha or Dorcas was a disciple of Jesus's. And so both of these miraculous healings took, took, uh, happened, and there were also obvious works of God. Aeneas was probably a follower of Jesus, as Luke says that Peter went to the countryside to visit the Lord's people, but it wasn't confirmed. Tabitha was definitely a follower of Jesus, and God raised her from the dead. And today, we're going to study a more subtle, miraculous healing, one that I think is actually more common than most healings through the work of God's Spirit, but also one that doesn't get as much attention. So what we do is we tend to go through verses, we'll read a little, we'll talk a little, read a little, talk a little, and then everyone will go out to their lunches. I have 1130 uh, reservations, so let's do this. All right, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He, verse 2, and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now, there are a bunch of implications in these two verses that, if I'm honest, get me really excited to unpack. First, an Italian centurion was a military man one who was part of the Roman Empire's army. The Roman Empire was powerful and unapologetic in their tactics to attempt to rule the world. And so Cornelius, being what we'll see as a man that God was really going to draw to himself, which was an amazing example of God's power over what we want in this world. The way Cornelius specifically was described was a God-fearing man. 
He was generous. He was devout. He was sincere. He was prayerful. And I think if we're a Christian in this place today, this is kind of how we want to be described. But what is implied, and as we will read later in the story in this passage, is that Cornelius and his family were very sincere in their faith of God, but they were sincerely wrong about who God actually is. No matter how good they were, God's intervention is always required in salvation. Always. But I'm spoiling what we're going to read and study over the next few weeks. What is important thus far is how devoted and serious Cornelius was about, let me use kind of a John Piper voice, about God. And how that actually, without recognizing Jesus as Lord, no matter how devout he was, had eternally no use. Now, Saul was a Pharisee who became Paul. We've talked about him. We, in Acts chapter, at the beginning of chapter 9, we saw Saul become Paul, or we saw Saul become a Christian. And he had a lot to say on this matter because he wrote a lot of the New Testament, so much so that the Holy Spirit, through him, what he wrote got documented and is now Scripture. And these words are words we ought to reflect on today and filter through the gospel. So here's what he says in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. If someone else thinks, listen to Paul, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, if someone else thinks they're religious, is another way to say what he just said, Paul says, I have more. He says, he was circumcised on the eighth day, a people of, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to, a law, to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul is communicating that when it came to a worldly point of view, worldly accolades, worldly justification for one's right standing before God, Paul had it dialed in. He had the market on religious righteousness. Now, by religious righteousness, I mean the idea, the theology, the assumption that he or you or I could do enough good, offend God so little that we can earn our way to God through good deeds that ratchet us up a ladder to him. And Paul, speaking like a bodybuilder, goes on and says in verse 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, more on that in a second, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But, what, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of of faith. Now, we're reading this in English. We translate it in such a way that it is a little bit palatable to our American understanding. But Paul uses some adult and colorful language here that we translate to saying that all that he had earned before Christ was, the word he used was garbage, or in reality, chocolate yogurt emoji. All right? He saw what he accomplished having no eternal significance. Once he met Christ and realized what Jesus did for him, it was the only thing that ever could, would ever, and should ever justify him before a holy and perfect God. So what makes this all plausible for him? 
What is it that makes all that he earned, all the religiousness, all the things that he had done before meeting Jesus, he had memorized and strived for, uh, he had strived for the idea of trying to be perfect according to the Bible. He had memorized much of the Old Testament. So what was it that made this new revelation about Jesus and his grace such a world changer? Well, he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ, Paul says. Yes, to know the power of the resurrection and participation in his, Jesus's, sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. We say this a lot, but church, I need you to understand that for us as Christians who follow Jesus Christ, the resurrection changes everything. It is the resurrection that cements the belief in the, our belief in the gospel. It is the resurrection that makes Jesus who he says that he is. God exists, that his word is true, that the church ought to exist. We hang all of our hat on the resurrection of Jesus, not because the leaders at COV crack some code, but because we read the Bible. And the Apostle Paul pointed everything back to the fact that Jesus is alive. Now, Paul, this same guy that we're talking about who wrote the, to the church in Philippi, Philippians, Paul was the poster child for being pious and religious and moral, excluding killing Christians, but he thought they were bad, so he gets a mulligan there, right? The reality is that God draws people to himself and gives a way for us to not be more religious, but to meet the righteous one who we believe is Jesus. Now, you've got Cornelius who was a very moral man. He did what was right in the eyes of everyone else. He was respected because he absolutely believed in the idea of God. He was prayerful. He was generous. He taught his family about his belief. But all the sincerity in the world, all the passion that he exuded for his belief system, doesn't make him holy or righteous. It just makes him religious in the eyes of other people. And other people's opinions about you cannot save you or change you. Tim Keller, a pastor in the East Coast, put it this way, it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. So then the question for us today, here on Mother's Day 2022, is simply this, who or what is the object of your faith. Because we may assume it's Jesus. You may be attending church regularly. You may really think that Christianity is your bag. But which Jesus? Jesus of the Bible? Now, we believe that the Jesus of the Bible, the one this one describes, is the only Jesus we ought to trust. Yet he isn't regulated to just pages of a book. But the way you see Jesus should never be based on extra-biblical resources. If the Bible isn't where we get our understanding about what Jesus is like, it's opinion or it's imaginary. But here's my point regarding the object of our faith. If work is expected in the object of our faith, that object is not Jesus. Because our relationship with Jesus doesn't require work to be saved, it inspires obedience to grow. And when we truly trust Jesus, when we truly want to know him, when we truly want to follow him, we want to do what he says, but we don't do what he says, so then God will love us because God already loves us. 
proven in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, let's move on. We've gotten through two verses so far. Yay, us. All right, here we go. Verse three. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. This is Cornelius. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with another guy named Simon, the tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now, this is very important in the book of Acts because for the very first time, we see God using the apostles to reach a Gentile, a non-Jew, and his household with the gospel. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. And yet, look at how God is doing this. The apostle isn't going to this Gentile military man, but an angel was sent to Cornelius, and he didn't preach the gospel to him, but he directed him to someone that could preach the gospel to him. One question I think many, many of us have, and maybe perhaps some of us struggle with, is the question, if people are, according to Christians, if people are only saved by Jesus, what about those who have never heard about him? This is a great question. The question tends to actually go a little bit more like this. What about the people who are very moral and seem to have faith in God, but not in Jesus? I really do think that this passage specifically is meant to help us with this very question. Because this person was very religious. He was very moral. He was very generous. He was very serious about God, but he didn't know who God was. Yet God decided to draw him to himself. He decided to use an angel not to preach the gospel to him, but to send him to someone who could. It's almost like God is at work and involved in knowing him. Weird. That sarcasm. He's always involved. Verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him, Cornelius, had gone, Cornelius called to two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened, and then he sent him to Joppa to look for Peter, is, is the implication. Now, Cornelius's rank in the Roman army was, high, was really high, considering who he had to send to go find Peter. Verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Now, there's a few things here. Culturally, homes were not set up like they are here. If you came onto my roof to pray, you would fall off, all right? But roofs back then, they had living spaces. They were places for storage. In fact, there were thoroughfares where people would walk from one roof to another roof in some parts of Jerusalem. So Peter did get away. He did get away to pray. He wanted to be by himself. That's why he went on the roof. And yet there is a, this precedent that is set by Jesus during his earthly ministry. He also would get away from people to be alone from God. Now, if you've never attended here, if you've never heard me teach the Bible, a lot of times when I come up here, I just tell you, okay, so I sin here. I do this wrong. I am not perfect. And I specifically think I struggle with what Peter just did here. What about you? Like, I enjoy praying with other people. I got to pray with, with uh, those that are serving this morning. I got to pray with uh, two other pastors this morning. I enjoy reading his word with other people. I also enjoy reading God's word by myself. 
I enjoy being together as a community. I enjoy doing things by myself, but I am not great at getting alone with God. I don't know if it's my attention span. Squirrel. I don't know if it's something worse. I don't know if it's sin in me. I don't know if I'm afraid that if I pray to him on my own often, that he's going to show me even more ways that I am not hitting the mark as a follower of Jesus, even though I'm pretty sure I'm not hitting the mark. Now, I run a lot, humble brag, and I run a lot because when COVID happened, I was like, I need something to do. There are so many people in my house, and so I started to run. Now, when I run, I usually listen to music or I listen to a podcast, but I kind of do the exact same run every single time that I run. Uh, I just change the distance, and I run down a trail because I don't like getting hit by cars more than once in a run. (sighs) But after the first two and a half miles, when I'm getting settled into my long run, that feels like a humble brag too. I like to take the AirPods out. I just start to listen to my feet hitting the pavement, and I start to begin to talk with God while I'm on my run. Sometimes I do it internally. Sometimes I talk out loud, which is really fun for the passerbyers. Jesus loves you. Yeah, you know, I do that. Sometimes when I'm talking to him, I'm arguing with him, if I'm honest. And I really like to talk to him when I'm on my run, But when I'm sitting still, the last thing I want to do is just be honest and open with him because a lot of times when I pray to him, he kind of shows me the reality that, man, Tim, you are making this about you. I believe that getting alone with God does draw me towards more and more intimacy with him, which produces and reminds me of my identity that can only be found in him. And so my challenge to me is to spend more time that isn't on a run, that isn't just with other people, but is actually done just alone with the Lord. And so if any of you want to, you know, test me on this this week, you can text me and go, hey, have you spent time with the Lord alone this week? Because as one of your pastors, I need to, because my Lord did it, and Peter did it. And the truth is, if we're followers of Jesus, we all need to be doing this. Verse 10, Peter became hungry, as you do, and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Okay. Now, I don't know if this was hunger-induced. Like, he started to see things because he was starving. I don't know if that's specifically what happened. Luke doesn't really seem to connect the two that obviously. But either way, Peter went into a trance, which seems deeper than a daydream. And then it says in verse 11, he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being led down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I have a great analogy for this from Doctor Strange 2, but it's too soon to spoil it for you, so later. Okay, so in this trance, or in this heavily sedated daydream, he saw what seemed like a sheet. It didn't say it was a sheet, it said it seemed like a sheet, with a bunch of different types of animals on it, which makes sense. He's hungry, and the Lord tells him to kill and eat these animals that according to the Levitical law, the law that he was supposed to keep, these animals were considered unclean. Now, in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Leviticus, I'm sure you've all memorized it, 
God gives a ton of explanation for what animals are clean for God's people and which ones are considered unclean. And he uses this explanation over and over in Leviticus to which ones are not okay to eat. Here's what he says multiple times. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 26. Every animal that does not have a divided hoof or that does not chew the cud is unclean for you. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them will be unclean. Now, the Levitical law was given to Moses. Moses was a Levite to give to those in the tribe of Levi to know how to love, obey, and worship God. And guess what? They couldn't keep the law. Shocking. And this is why we worship and praise Jesus, Christians, who, according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, for too long in my Christian walk, I think I was a bit of a New Testament Christian. And I didn't see the necessity or the need for the Old Testament. But here's the crazy thing about this book, church. It's all about Jesus. All of it. Because the law points us to our need for a Savior. The law points us to the fact that there was going to be someone that could fulfill it. And we could not do that. So Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it so we could no longer try really hard to be good, but trust the one who was perfect with our eternity. We say all the time that your works cannot save you. And I think generally we believe that those works are being like a good neighbor. State Farm, no, wait, sorry. We think that our good works, we believe, make us a good person. But that's subjective, isn't it? And this Levitical law was put into place lifetimes before you existed. The law was given not to make us do better, but to reveal our need for a Savior. Paul writes to the church in Rome, in Romans 7, verse 7, he always asks rhetorical questions. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For what I would not have known was coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So through the law, through the expectations of a Jew to attempt to please God through their obedience, we receive the only possible way any of us could ever come to God through a saving Lord who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. If you notice, when we did the child dedications, there was no talk of, we really hope you kids are really good and moral and you don't embarrass us. We care significantly more that those kids hear about Jesus and God in his mercy lights a fire in them to want to follow him. And will their morals probably be different than the world? Guaranteed. But their morals will never, ever save them. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul is still talking about the law, but he talks about the thing that actually justifies us. He says, know that a person is not justified by works, by what they do of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So while Peter preached justification, not through the law, but through faith in the law fulfiller, he was still stuck in his former religion. Look at how he replies to the Lord's command to eat these animals. Here's what he says, verse 14. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. 
I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now, just to make clear, once again, we see someone communicating with the risen Jesus and arguing with him, which seems to be this comical thing that happens throughout the book of Acts. And Peter, for the record, is arguing theology with God. But here's the thing I want you to understand. It's contradicting to call Jesus Lord, but to say, surely not. I want to be my own Lord, don't you? Like, I want to call the shots. I want to be in control. I want to be sovereign and dictate all the things that happen around me. But if I'm honest with myself, I can't. When I was younger, I had the illusion of being a lot more immortal than I feel now. And some of that comes with maturity, of understanding how the world really works. Some of that comes with decay. Because, well, my body doesn't heal itself like it once did. I am no longer Wolverine as I once was. I can't call Jesus Lord, but then tell him no. Something is wrong with my picture of lordship and mastery over me if I do that, as was Peter's problem in this moment. And look at what Peter says. I have never done that. Peter is justifying himself by something he hasn't done. You want to know what a legalist looks like? Someone who justifies themselves by something they haven't done. To be proud of the negative. To be proud that you've abstained and you believe you deserve something because of your, quote, self-control. As believers and followers of Jesus, which I know there are many in this room, of course there are things we shouldn't do. And hopefully we don't do them. But if we do, church, we have a Savior who stands in the gap. Whoa! It's a good one. He stands in the gap for us, unlike the person who just wants to point to their moral record of abstaining. What is wrong is being proud that there are things that you will not do. And legalism in us may make us believe that by our not doing something, the world then takes notice. But honestly, I don't think God has ever used someone's lack of attending a rated R movie to then make someone else go, man, I need that Jesus. No, I think God uses the humility of a believer to admit when they have been wrong or when they've failed or when they've sinned. I think God uses the faith of a believer who is in the middle of heartache and tragedy and can get through the day because of their God whom they love. I don't want to show off what I abstain from. I want to put on display God's redemptive work in my life through his grace. Am I having a stroke or are the lights going on and off? It's probably me. Now, have you ever thought about Jesus' sinlessness? Like, he never did anything apart from God's law, and he didn't do anything wrong, but he also did everything right. And the sin of omission, to not do what we ought to, is even more shocking to me. It creates worship in me. That Jesus never committed this sin that I do way more than I realize I do, which is the sin of omission, to not do what I'm supposed to do. So Peter, after being proud of his legalism, is then told by the Lord, the voice spoke to him a second time, I'll I'll do Mike's voice, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. God's fulfilling of the law in Jesus meant that the law now was obvious that none of us, you, me, or Peter, could fulfill it. 
that mankind was not sufficient to keep the law, but there was one person who could, and it was Jesus. And faith and trust in him as our justification, also known as our right standing, was all that was expected. Because of this, Peter no longer could hide behind his religious reasons for his spiritual bigotry and his racism against people of other bloodlines. Now, I want to point out that Peter, the same apostle who was dominated by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, still had parts of him that God needed to heal and change because Peter still hid behind justifying himself by what he did and what he didn't do. And if he admitted it or not, he believed he was better than others because of this. I hate that I identify with what I just said about Peter. I hate that I can't say these words and in all honesty go, what's that like? I have no idea. I mean, I could pretend to do that. I could pretend that I don't ever treat people differently because of external things, but that's just not true. And I believe I have the same Holy Spirit indwelling me that indwelled Peter. So what's the deal? Why am I not more holy? I've been following Jesus for two decades. Why am I not perfect yet? The short answer, because I am still breathing. That's why. And in this life, we are not promised sinlessness living. We are offered a sinless Lord to follow. And not only was and is there grace in our salvation, there is grace in our sanctification, our Christ-likeness, our growing spiritually as well. And when I read passages like this, or really any passages in Scripture, it ought to point me to my need for a Savior, my want for a Redeemer, and my requirement of a Lord who is better than me. Because every time we open this, Every time we open the Bible on our own or in community or in this corporate setting, we have the opportunity to repent, to change direction, to stop doing things the way that we were doing. Now, look at what God is saying here. He says, do not detest what I have created. Do not fight against the fact that my people aren't just like you. Here's the reality of the gospel, this thing we talk about all the time, that Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, that he lived the perfect life we couldn't, he died the death we should have died, he physically rose from the dead, and we can put our justification in him. Here's the fact about the gospel. It is for any and every skin color. It is for every dialect. It is for every background, rap sheet, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, Republican, Independent, Democrat, Boomer, Gen Xer, Gen Y, Gen Zer, and beyond. Come on. And the gospel can't be earned, nor can it be lost, but it can, unfortunately, which it often is, be rejected because we want to do things our own way. Now, God has healed Aeneas of his paralyzation. We studied that last week. We also studied that God healed Tabitha of her physical death, and here God is healing Peter of his racism his bigotry, his spiritual snobbishness that he had developed over time and through his culture. Now listen, there is one evidence or emphasis we have at this church. As Christians, we have one emphasis that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. Why? Because we know that Jesus died for our sins and proved it was not a coincidence or a story that was made up or just a fluke, but Jesus' resurrection signifies that the gospel is true and the point. 
But other than the gospel being the point, there really shouldn't be something else that excludes us from others who call Jesus their Lord. So if your background is religious, but you trust and love Jesus, you're my sibling in the faith. If your background is depraved and disgusting, but Jesus in his mercy has saved you, you are family. If you'd like different music or watch different news programs or root for different teams that I don't like, none of that changes your eternal connection to Christ and to me. And Peter, who had been filled with the Holy Spirit, who was an apostle of Jesus Christ, who was still being transformed to look more like Jesus and less like he used to be. So I hope that gives you hope, church to know that you're not what you once were and praise God that you aren't who you used to be because God is at work making you into something new because in Christ he transforms us and conforms us more into his image. All right, verse 16, we're almost done. Luke writes, this happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Peter's in this trance. He's had this illustration of things he saw as unclean because of his religion. He had been told three times before he got it. Now, I know many of us who have been told 50 times that we are not saved by what we do, we, that we are not right with God because of our skin color, what we've abstained from, that we can't keep the law, or by any external action, who still don't get it. So I guess in a way, Peter is an overachiever. It only took him three times in this trance, from the Lord, to understand. Oh, and about three years of walking closely with Jesus, knowing he died, seeing the resurrected Jesus in person multiple times. Wait, no. Peter's no overachiever. He's stubborn, just like all of us. So here's where I want to conclude. I want to be done. I want to invite Malik up. I want him to sing. I could totally be done. But here's the thing. This is Mother's Day 2022. I want to thank you guys for being with us. Even if you came because you were invited for a dedication or a friend just said, hey, you should come to church. Mother's Day, specifically for me, very difficult holiday. For years, I didn't want to preach on Mother's Day. Before I was a Christian, I didn't even want to see people on Mother's Day. I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to do anything. Because today signifies loss for me. <clears throat> so my mom passed away when I was eight years old. And it shaped me in more ways than I think I could ever realize, in more ways than a therapist could ever bring up. My mom was not a model citizen. She did some stuff that I heard about that was not good. It wasn't even legal. But I knew my mom as a woman who absolutely loved me no matter what. When I was three years old, my mom kidnapped me from my dad. They had been divorced for a few years. And she took me to Nebraska. Woo! She changed my name. She told me my dad was dead. A year later, my dad and a bunch of FBI agents came into my room and took me back to Southern California, where I lived with my dad, after someone saw my face on a milk carton in Nebraska. My mom went to prison for three years, and I was told she attempted to kill herself, and she failed. Eventually, she got out of prison. When I was seven, I got to spend more time with her and my stepdad, Don, who she lived with. When I was eight, she had developed some pretty serious cancer in what seemed almost like overnight, I witnessed her deteriorate and die. It was about six months from diagnosis to death. She played Nintendo with me in this time. She took me to movies. She played Life and Monopoly with me. She gave me the birds and bees talk. She taught me manners. And like I said, she loved me unconditionally with all the strength that she had left. 
The weekend that she passed, I remember being with her the day that I was told that we were going to have to take her to the hospital, and my mom and my stepdad drove her and myself drove her to Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. And I remember getting into her room, I remember the very last time I talked to her, I remember asking her if she was going to be okay, and she told me yes. And I think she really did believe that. I remember my stepdad, Don, driving me back to Glendale, where I lived with my dad. I remember Don driving away. I remember that I went into my room, and I played Nintendo because I was an 80s kid. And also because my mom said she'd be okay, and I believed her. I remember being woken up by a knock at the door the next morning where my stepdad, Don, and my mom's brother were at the door talking to my dad. I remember my dad turning around, and I could tell on his face before he said anything what had happened to my mom. Now, I grew up a pretty uh, uh, careless kid when it came to anything religion. My dad was an antagonistic agnostic. Oh, I don't believe in that. Well, what about this? I don't care. That was my dad. My mom was adopted. She was adopted by a Mormon family that had taught her the Mormon ideals, but everything her, my aunts, her sisters told me was she never bought into that stuff. She likes caffeine. Sorry, it was too easy. So to say she wasn't very religious would be a decent explanation of my mom's life. Well, years later, I heard the story of what happened to my mom the night she died. Apparently, she got put into a room. I remember saying bye to her. There was a bed next to her. And then a, about an hour later, I don't know the exact timing, they brought another woman into the room who also was very sick, who was also probably dying of cancer. And this woman started, uh, started to cry. There was a sheet in between them. I'm getting all of this story from my stepdad who eventually talked to my mom about it. And this sheet was between them and this woman starts to cry and my mom, without very much energy, somehow got out of bed and went over to this woman to check in on her because that's the type of woman my mom was. And they started to talk and my mom asked the woman why she was crying and she said, well, I'm going to die. And but I'm not crying because I'm going to die. I'm crying because my son doesn't know Jesus. Now, my mom didn't believe in Jesus at this point, from what I could tell. And she probably had this thought, well, why is this woman crying? She's about to lose her life. Why is she crying about a family member not knowing to her probably like the Easter Bunny? So this woman starts to tell my mom about the difference that Jesus has made in her life, what Jesus has accomplished, the reality that he lived the perfect life that she, this woman could not live, died the death she deserved to die, and physically rose from the dead. And in God's mercy and grace, I was told that my mom, while talking to this woman, hearing about Jesus for the first time in her life, my mom repented and trusted Christ. Now, I don't know the timing. I don't know if it was like a, a, a Hallmark movie, but all of a sudden, within a little while, this woman passed away after telling my mom about Jesus. My stepdad comes back to the hospital after dropping me off, sees a person being willed out with a sheet over their head and, and freaks out and thinks it's my mom, and it's not. So my stepdad and my mom start to talk, and my mom starts to tell Dawn about what she just heard and started to share with Dawn about who Jesus is. Now, I called Don too Christian, and he never gets to the end of my sermon, so I can make fun of him. He listens to him, but his attention span is even shorter than mine. Too Christian, like you call in his answer machine. Anyone remember answer machines? Okay. You get his answer machine. It was like a voicemail, but like you could hear it on the other end while they talked. 
his voicemail would be like, Psalm 139. And then he'd read the whole thing, and I'd be like, nope. Um, But that was because God used my mom on her deathbed to share Christ with Don. And here's what my mom said to Don, other than here's what I was just told about Jesus. Don, you got to make sure my son hears about this. You got to be sure that Tim, she called me Timmy, don't do it. People have called me that are dead, and there's a reason. You got to make sure that Timmy knows about this. And so my mom passed away that night. And then Dawn started to pray for me. Started to eventually tell me more about you. We're still close. We still talk every time we're down in LA. He's part of the family. He's Grandpa Dawn to my kids. But uh, God showed up in in that hospital room and drew my mom to himself using a woman who was about to pass from this life to the next. So you don't tell me that God doesn't use miraculous conversations of his people to draw people to himself. And that's what we're studying. That's what we're going to continue to study. That's what we get to talk about in this passage as we continue it. The reality that God will reach people if he so chooses and he's going to use miraculous means. And so I praise God for that woman who I don't even know the name of. I praise God that he drew my mom to himself right before she died. I praise God for my stepdad, Don, who wasn't afraid to tell me about it, even though he was a little weird when he did it. God used all of that, and here I am, and I am not a good person. Hear me. I am not a good person. If I compare myself to, I don't know, Hitler, I'm killing it. But I'm not a good person. I'm a forgiven person. And that's what makes the difference. Malik, you can come on up. I'm going to pray for us. My hope is that if God stirred something in you, if you heard something that's challenging you, if you want to know more about this Jesus that we talk about, if you want to get more connected in the church, if you need prayer, there are these little cards in front of you. Feel free to write on them while we worship in song as we do announcements. We're going to close in just a few moments after just a, little, a few more things. But if you want to communicate with us, fill one of those cards out, drop it in the box where the people that are a part of this church sometimes give their offerings. And drop it in there, and we'll get in contact with you. Let's pray. Father, I hate this holiday. I don't like the feels. I don't like to remember stuff. But God, it's a, it's a great reminder of your grace in my life. And so I thank you for that. And I thank you for the moms in this place. I thank you for the, those people that you've given this heart and want to nurture other people. Because I don't want to do that but it's a part of your heart, God. And so I thank you for what you did in that day in 1989 in my mom's life. Thank you for your grace, and I thank you, God, that you're still at work today drawing people to yourself. May you get all the praise. May you get all the glory. May you give us the faith to trust you even when we want to do things our own way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.